In fact, that gets us directly then to your greater glory uh, theodicy. Yeah. Right, because that's what gets that's what gives God the greatest glory. Yeah, those, I, I, those elements. I, I keep reading the Bible, and I, I I like I like seeing myself in there. So you know, uh, <laughs> David comes in, he slays Goliath. I, I really like that story, and then all of a sudden, God comes in and has to uh, eschew him of all the evil that he's done. He breaks all ten commandments. I I, I like the Apostle Peter. Uh, you, you know, he seems really gung ho. And then he comes uh, to to you know lop off an ear. That that's that's really good. I, I see myself in that a lot. And then lo and behold, God comes in and interjects Himself. And it seems to be that God keeps putting Himself in the forefront of Scripture. And I, I as a person that looks at pictures for only me, I don't appreciate that. And so, is there something towards your theodicy that that uh, might speak uh, uh, in favor of uh, of God at the center of the story? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Any theodicy that does not place God, and, and I, I argue any theodicy that does not place God's glory supremely at the center, uh, there's something wrong with that theodicy. And I think that's one of the major, if you want to back up and look at all of the ways that, that Christians have addressed the problem of evil, I, I think you can hone them down to those that are far more man-centered and those that are more God-centered. And unfortunately, I believe that the free will theism tends to be more man-centered and has, has a, a greater emphasis upon man and his choices and his autonomy, supposed autonomy, and that God is subservient to the concerns of the human, you know, person. Uh, and, and that God's whole design for creation was for the happiness of man. And really that's, that's at the heart of free will theism is that God's greatest, this is why they emphasize God's love as his greatest attribute, his love, not toward members of the Trinity, but his love for humans. And so the assumption is, is if God really loves human beings and he wants their happiness and so the happiness of the human is at the center of God's concerns. And, and so, but that in itself is a problem because if God was so concerned about the happiness of humans, then why did he create conditions on the earth in which sin would, would come about? Uh, so again, it's just, you get into so many problems when you get to a man-centered kind of theology. And, and so uh, a theology that is God-centered means that everything is going to center on God's glory and what brings him the most glory. And and you bury the lead on page six and seven of this. Again, I, uh, <laughs> I've got my little marker on here, and I, I it's a different color. And I'm like, oh, it's so early in the book that, that you give us. Uh, so <laughs> it's uh, it was it was interesting. But then you you um, you go and I, I think uh, some of the really interesting chapters, and I was just wondering if you can kind of lay out what your thinking process was with with, with laying out this book because you deal with stuff that I would not expect to find in a reformed Calvinist uh, uh, book. You talk about 
uh, God is the storyteller and the meta narrative. It, it was uh, kind of a, 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 a if if people know Jordan Peterson, it was kind of uh, n- nice to 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 see. Uh, um, a Christian <laughs> version of that, not to talk poorly against Jordan Peterson. Uh, but then uh, again, you, you go in uh, and, and rightly so you focus on the character and nature of God. We, we talked about uh, God is loving, but uh, again, that, that incarnation uh, chapter and, and, and just how uh, God focused and loving the incarnation is. Um, I, I think uh, I, I, I said that uh, in, in Goodreads, you can kind of make shelves for things. And I like I like doing uh, books that I can grab off the shelf and say, OK, I want to learn about uh, things like the Theodicy or, or, or Incarnation. And I was like I'm, I went to my Goodreads shelf and I marked this in the Incarnation because I thought uh, it, you do you do a great service with with the idea in a very, um, again, uh, uh, useful application sense of, of, of the incarnation. And so, um, can you talk about, uh, kind of what, what led you from, from, from the theodicy into kind of the meta narrative and, and focusing on, on God's character throughout this and the storytelling aspect. Yeah. It was really, really excellent. I, I, I'm going to sing your praises about it a lot. (laughs) in this. (laughs) Yeah. So in order to introduce, um, what I call the greater glory theodicy, you know, I, I decided it was important to look at the broad narrative of scripture, but how that narrative seems to reflect the way that human beings throughout history, uh, for the most part, have told stories. And so that's why I begin my actual introduction of my theodicy with a chapter on storytelling and that there seems to be a universal pattern to how good stories are told and that every good story usually has some kind of crisis. In fact, it's not a really good story at all unless there's, unless there is some crisis that is introduced that goes against the way things ought to be. Right. So we as human beings, we have this conception of a, of a kind of utopia, if you will, or the way things ought to be, um, you know, a Garden of Eden kind of reality. And then and then some kind of crisis that destroys that that picture of serenity, that that picture of beauty and peace and, and, and coherence and all of that. And it shatters that, that picture of way, the way things should be, uh, the way things that we want them to be as humans. And it shatters that reality. And then in the course of the story, some hero intervenes and restores and defeats the crisis, defeats the villain, whoever it is that, comes in and destroys things or whatever, and then restores things back to the way they're supposed to be. And so that what you have in storytelling is this sort of U shape where you have an assumption or, or the beginning of the story uh, shows how things should be. And then suddenly this crisis intervenes and then the rest of the story is how that crisis gets resolved in order to restore things back to the way they should be. The classic example of this is the Lord of the Rings, 
right? So you we may look have at mentioned the, that a few times in the show. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the Lord of the Rings story, what Tolkien did, you know, if, for those who've read the books or, or my son's reading the books right now, uh, but, uh, you know, or if you've seen the movies, you know, the, the trilogy, you know, it starts out in the Shire, right? And it's this, this kind of perfect, oh, this is the way life should be. People are happy. They're enjoying each other. They're, there's this vital community. And then suddenly these dark things start entering into the story. And then we learn about this ring uh, that, that we discover has this great power, but yet it's evil. And anyone who gets a hold of this ring is destroyed by it. And so, so you know, we need someone to get a hold of this ring that can handle the evil of it and destroy it somehow in order to restore harmony and peace back to Middle Earth. Right. And, and so it's a classic example of this U-shaped storyline in which you have a set of ideal conditions, the way things ought to be, then a crisis that undermines those ideal conditions. And then some hero or set of heroes or something in the story that that resolves that crisis and brings it back to the way things ought to be. So I, so I spent a whole chapter talking about storytelling and that virtually every good story has that even those stories that end tragically. Um, so historically in, in, in storytelling, you have comedies and tragedies. Comedies are where the stories end good tragedies are where the stories end sort of bad, but leave you wanting. But in reality, what I argue is that in tragedies where the hero fails, um, that, that it's actually produces a greater longing for the comedy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't like tragedies because it leaves you sad and uh, they didn't resolve the story. <laughs> you know, but it causes you to long more for the comedy mm-hmm. because we know the comedy is the way that things ought to be. Yeah. And this resonates with every human being. Every human being loves these types of stories. Now, that has nothing to do with the morals and the ethics and the worldview that is interjected into these stories. As I point out in, in that chapter, you know, you can have a whacked, unbelieving worldview and yet create conditions, you know, where you still have good and evil, however you define it, and, and, a, and a crisis you know, and however your worldview defines those things, the pattern is still the same. Uh, and so I asked the question, where does this pattern come from? Well, I believe God hardwired it into our humanity. And that because we're fallen creatures, we know instinctively something ain't right about this world, you know, and there's something not right about us. You know, we are fallen creatures. We are subject to sin and evil and misery and, and, and just conditions in this world that just don't seem right. And so, you know, we live in a fallen world. And I believe God hardwired us for, for experiencing a restoration to the way things ought to be. And so what I say is that every story really is a story about redemption. Um, and... And that really, that just mirrors this, the, the meta narrative of scripture of creation, fall and redemption, that you have this sort of U-shaped pattern 
in the whole unfolding of the scriptural narrative where you start out with creation, then immediately within the first few pages, the crisis is introduced, you know, the to temptation of Adam and Eve and the serpent entering the garden and boom, you start almost start off with the crisis, you know, just right on the tails of, you know, the seventh day when God declared everything to be very good. Yeah. Uh, and so immediately we're thrust right into the crisis of the whole, the whole crisis of history on page two of the Bible. You know? <laughs> and, and so the rest of the Bible is really God's plan to restore Eden, to bring paradise back front and center. So why did he do that? You know, why didn't he just create the storyline flat? Why didn't he create conditions in the garden so that Adam and Eve uh, never had the possibility of sinning that why didn't he just prevent the serpent from ever slithering into the garden in the first place? Uh, no, it seems to me that God planned all of that because why? Because it gave him the opportunity to magnify his glory in a way that he otherwise could not, unless he created, unless he freely created conditions by which this crisis entered the world and he would send forth his son through the incarnation, through the death and resurrection to defeat evil, to redeem a people for himself and to bring resolution to all of the evil and ultimately to restore creation itself to its rightful place. And that's the whole storyline of the Bible. Amen. And to me, that is the theodicy of the Bible. Yeah. Amen. And yeah. You, 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 and you, one of the things that I, I, I've been saying after reading your book is there's a reason that we have the Bible. But, you know, why is it not just a series of rules of do, do's and do nots? There are stories involved in it. And uh, I was recently a guest host on uh, the Anarchist uh, Bible study where we went over uh, uh, in the book of Judges, um, uh, Gideon. And Gideon's story has that that fall off <laughs> almost immediately. Uh, you, you think he's going to be redeemed and at the end, uh, there's the tragedy the, you know, he, he's, he's, he's not quite the King, but he also is the King. Cause he takes the, the, the cloak. He takes the, 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 the metal. He takes, uh, the, 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 the gold. He names the son, uh, my father is the King. And so, <laughs> so, you know, it was, uh, 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 the Anakin Skywalker, you know, you were supposed to be the chosen one. And, and, uh, yeah. he, yes. he does, he does point though to, uh, uh, I won't be the king, but God should be your king. And so it, it's again this this uh, this idea where you know uh, seeing Christ uh, uh, pre uh, kind of preordained in the scripture of this is the fulfillment that He's going to come come and bring about, and that's why it's so important that we we maintain the Old Testament or reading Job. And uh, I, I I read Job when we were going through it. It was uh, a very providential, not lucky, but providential. And uh, and how God doesn't give an answer. He doesn't give an answer for uh, why the serpent. What you know? Why does Satan fall? He doesn't give us that answer. That's why stories like Paradise Lost seems so important to us because it kind of gives us the yeah. uh, the fan fiction version of well, what was behind the scenes of of that? And and you know, you 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 start Job in. It, 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 you know, at, at, at the throne and you're like, whoa, th this is something new and, and interesting. And, and, uh, and yet the focus after, after being in the mud, almost literally with Job for so many chapters and, and his friends who probably aren't the best friends at the end, uh, <laughs> is, is God focused. And, and, uh, so I, I, 
uh, I thought that was a, a, a good challenging, uh, um, outlook of, of, of my own, um, kind of, uh, ideas of, yeah, I like seeing myself in this, but ultimately what is, what, what's the focus of creation? Is it me? Well, it can't be because I'm, I'm who I am. I'm just created. I'm fallen. Uh, I, yeah, I'm redeemed, but then, okay, well who redeemed me and who created me and who, uh, uh, put, put out those conditions that I came to uh, salvation for. And, and the Bible explicitly talks about, um, that salvation isn't a, a work of my own doing. Uh, you know, the, there, there's nothing that I'm doing there. I'm not force sensitive. I'm not salvation sensitive, but that I'm, I'm, uh, chosen freely by God to come for being a, uh, a, I could have been a vessel of wrath or a, a vessel of, of, of glory. And, uh, uh, your, your Romans nine part, which, uh, we kept teasing because, uh, uh it, it, it could have been so easy to put Romans nine right up front, but, uh, but, uh, you, you laid out this, uh, kind of meta narrative and then boom, hit us with Romans nine. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the issue really stems from why did God create the world? You know, did he create it for our sake or did he create it for his sake? Um, Yes, he created it for our sake, but he created it for our sake, ultimately for his sake. (laughs) And what I mean by that is that God's ultimate reason for creating a world was to bring glory to himself because he is the only one worthy of such supreme glory. And he's chosen to do that by sharing his glory with creatures that he chose to make and to magnify his glory before those creatures who were designed to then magnify his glory, to worship him and to be in awe and wonder of who this amazing God is. But how did God most magnify his glory? Well, he could have been glorified by creating a paradise in which the fall would have never taken place. He could have been glorified in that. There's no question. God will, you know, God will glorify himself and everything, but how would God supremely glorify himself? And I believe if we just back up and ask the question, how has God most supremely glorified himself? Every Christian at some point has got to come back to the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, why was, what is that? What, what was the purpose of that? Well, it's obvious that it's that the purpose for the incarnation is redemption. It is to redeem sinful human beings from this corrupt world and from their own corrupt hearts and minds, their own corrupt souls, and and that God is most supremely magnified in the grace that he displays in saving, uh, you know, these, these rotten, fallen creatures who do not deserve salvation, who do not deserve redemption, and yet by God's grace, he redeems them anyway, and, and he does that by himself entering the story through the second person of the Trinity and, you know, condescends to our level, enters into our pain and our, uh, our misery, and then he redeems our pain, our misery, our sin through his own death, brutal death on the cross in which he experienced the wrath of God and thereby satisfies God's wrath in order to redeem these undeserving creatures and thereby magnify his glory beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Uh, 
And there is no world that we can conceive of whereby God's glory could be magnified more than in the story that he has already established through the Redeemer who came and, and, and defeated sin and evil and death and the curse and suffering and pain and all of that through his death and resurrection and ultimately through the establishment of his eternal kingdom. Mm, yeah, good. And, and so um, I guess uh, th- that leads v- very well into my pastoral question. So uh, Pastor Christensen, something evil has happened to me. Why exactly did God allow it to happen? <laughs> can you can you kind of give us uh, um, uh, an overview uh, maybe of, of something that we as, as Christians can point to when we have unbelievers, believers, you know, all of humanity ha- has, has this interaction of, of we've experienced something evil. Can we point to it? You know, if I, if I was going to write a pure flicks film, uh, you know, I would set up all my characters, something bad would happen. And at the end, uh, you know, the, the, the car accident would, would uh, uh, save the life of six people because the organs have gone, gone to uh, uh, people that would go on to cure cancer. World peace would, would uh, <laughs> bring about, uh, you know, the, 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 the next uh, uh, president of the, of, the, of the third United States uh, uh, revolution would, would come into play. Uh, John Connor, you know, would save humanity from Skynet. Um, but, but, but we don't, we don't, we, we don't see, we, you know, and even in the Bible, we, we don't see, unless if directly revealed, we don't see uh, that kind of uh, hidden plan of God. And so what, what can we say to uh, uh, people that say uh, something evil, something bad happened to me today? What was God's purpose in that? Yeah. So there's a, there's a whole number of things that we could say, you know, you know, you, you, you mentioned Job earlier and in Job's experience, Job asked that very question evil had occurred in Job's life in, in an unjustified sense, right? Job was a righteous man and, and he was righteous, not by his own declaration, but by the declaration of God himself. You know, when he, when he spoke to Satan, he says, have you considered my Job a blameless man upright, you know, in all of his ways, uh, you know, and so God himself is declaring Job to be a righteous man. And yet he incites Satan to attack Job for no apparent reason other than that Satan thinks, oh yeah, I'll, I'll attack Job. And if you, and if I do, he'll curse you to your face. And God's like, no, he won't. <laughs> And, and he goes, yes, he will. You know, you can imagine, you know, if we want to, you know, turn this into a little story, you know, there's a debate between God and Satan. He goes, he goes, you can, you can attack him and he's not going to curse me. He goes, yes, he will. No, he won't. Yes, he will. You know? <laughs> um, and of course, Job does not. He maintains his integrity. Now his wife said, curse God and die, you know, <laughs> but, but she was speaking foolishly as he pointed out. Um, You know, but in the end, Job is never told why he suffered, as you pointed out earlier. In fact, when he finally does have that face-to-face conversation with God, God basically says, where were you when I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I created these creatures, and I did this to the world? Where were you when I did all that? And Job's like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) he falls on his face in sackcloth and ashes and said, I, I repent. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. And, um, 
and he just falls in worship before this glorious God. He never gives Job an answer. You know, now, of course, God does restore Job's fortunes and, and so forth. But what is going on there? Um, for the believer, there's something very powerful about suffering that we can learn. And, you know, we know from, for example, Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. That's the believer, right? So it's not just some things, you know, it's not just, you know, I'm going to use this good stuff to do good blessings in your life, but this bad stuff, yeah, well, I don't know what to do about that. You know, you're just going to have to deal with that on your own because I, as your God, I can't help you there. That, that, that is just not something that God does to his children. So we have to understand that God is doing something with our suffering. And I think one of the most powerful passages, and I, and I wish now I had probably spent more time unfolding the riches of this passage, but it's, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 16 through uh, 18. And, and there Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, right? He is immediately referencing the curse. You know, our outer man is decaying as believers. We're not free from the curse, from the pain of the curse, from, from our bodies wearing down. As we get older and older, you know, we get more feeble and we have more aches and pains and eventually we're going to die. Right. So even the Christian is not immune from the curse that our outer man is, is in this process of decaying and degenerating and getting worse and worse. So he says that, and then he says, but yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So he's making a distinction between our outer man and our souls that are being renewed because we have been redeemed. We've been justified. And then he makes this amazing statement of verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, I preached on this, this, this passage a number of weeks ago. And one of the things that I tried to point out to people is that suffering, affliction, is the main subject here. Uh, the main verb in this verse is the word producing. And then the object is glory. So if you want to just, you know, you know, bring cool. verse 17 down to its basic elements. Basically, Paul is saying affliction produce is producing glory for you. Okay, so what does that mean? It, it tells us that affliction is not just inert. It's not just some passive thing that just happens to us as believers. No, what Paul is saying is that God has actually purposed your affliction to do something. It's doing something for you. It is producing something. It is not passive. It is active. And what is it doing? What is it producing? It's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Hmm. So, I may not be able to answer for you what God may be doing with some affliction that he brings into your life in terms of the temporary 
uh, effects of that for you, right? You may lose a child in childbirth. I, I just was talking to one of the elders in our church whose daughter just lost a, a baby, a miscarriage yesterday. Uh, you know, devastating uh, for that family. You know, what is God doing in that? I, I don't know specifically what God might be doing in the temporal realm with regard to that particular thing. There could be many things that he's doing that will bring blessing to that person in this realm, to that Christian in, the, in this present life. Um, maybe, maybe not. Job, you know, God didn't have to restore all of Job's fortunes. He could have left Job a destitute man to the end of his life. Would that have been bad on God's part? No. Because what God ultimately was doing with Job had nothing to do with restoring his fortunes in this present life, but it had to do with the eternal glory that was awaiting him for all eternity. And so we get our perspective skewed because we think that, that, God's got to resolve all of the problems of evil in our personal lives now, here and now. But he doesn't make us that promise. What he does promise us is that all of the affliction that we're experiencing in this life now is producing an eternal weight of glory such that when we come face to face before a Redeemer in glory, in our resurrection bodies, we will experience a glory that we could have never had, uh, could have never experienced or ever enjoyed or ever appreciated unless we had gone through the afflictions and the pain and the misery of the curse of this life in such a way that we can appreciate the glory and the grace and the redemption that Christ brought about for us in eternity that, that just cannot be compared to anything he might be, be doing for us in this present age. Mm. And so, yes, he does do amazing things in this present age, but he's by no means obligated to resolve every last problem of evil or affliction or trials or tribulations, you know, pain and suffering that we might experience in this age. Yes, it builds our faith uh, for sure. It, it, you know, Peter tells us that, that, you know, that suffering is like the fires of a furnace that forge and purify our faith. Yes, he does that in everything. That's at the very least. But what this passage in 2 Corinthians is telling us is that God is doing something way beyond that. He is using this affliction to, to create a, a set of conditions for the future such that we will be immersed in a glory that is unfathomable. And all of our affliction in this present life is producing this future glory. And, and it is, it's overwhelming if you sit and meditate and think about what this passage is really saying. And so uh, I may not be able to answer why God does any specific, ins- what he is doing in any specific instance of evil or affliction in the life of the believer uh, in this life, but I do know what he's doing for future, you know, for the life of the, of the believer in the future. And let me tell you, it is mind blowing (laughs) and it will bring such glory to God and bring such deep rooted satisfaction and joy to our souls that, that we have no idea 
how amazing that glory is going to be yeah. all because of the affliction that we're going through in the present. Yeah. Wow. That's so, what yes. I would say. Believers. <laughs> great, great. Now, and, and I know we have to let you go here, but uh, you know, and it just struck me when you were uh, giving that explanation that it's almost a tiny mirror of God's overall story, right? Christ suffered affliction to bring yes. glory to God, mm. right? Yes. And so it's it's the same thing, only we have it in a little miniature way, right? Our yeah. sufferings of affliction will bring glory, right? Not, not yeah. only to God, but to us, as you point out. So, yeah, yes. that's uh, fan- yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. I think that's what Paul means when he says, I share in the afflictions of Christ, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. even in, in, is it Hebrews, where it says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Well, what was that joy set before him? It was the redemption of his people, you know, and, and the joy that that brought him that compelled him to immerse himself into this darkness that was the cross and the wrath of God that he bore uh, the weight of upon his, his suffering body uh, and the cry of dereliction that that is just unfathomable to us to think of what was going on between the father and the son when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet all of that, he bore joyfully knowing the glory and, and the redemptive glory that that would, you know, create for his people. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, that's the greater glory theodicy. Yeah, uh, right. And I would say, be careful of reading uh, this book around your kids. Cause I think uh, uh, my six year old <laughs> was uh, just, uh, you know, doing what six year olds do playing and, and, you know, uh, my wife was working and she just, you know, absentmindedly said, you know, uh, why, why do you think, uh, God allowed, uh, uh, the, the, the illness that shall not be named, uh, to, uh, to come into this world. And, you know, my wife just, you know, was concentrating on something. She goes, I don't know, kiddo. And she paused for a second goes, uh, the six year old goes, um, probably to, to bring people to God. Right. And I'm like, did, did my six year old just Romans nine us? I was like, I, I don't know if that's, you know, yeah. the, the light of Christ in her, uh, uh, Lord willing, or if I've been talking way too much about your book, but I would just say, be careful where, where you put, uh, Scott Christian's book, uh, uh, <laughs> at in your house. <laughs> so what about this, this, uh, the, this issue of, uh, I noticed you have a question about, uh, a trilogy maybe or something yeah so um so you've titled your books the whatabouts uh i don't know if that's uh purely coincidental or providential sorry not coincidental (laughs) um uh so what about free will what about evil um and your your what about evil is is going to uh be a uh, more reader friendly uh, uh version called light shining out of darkness how god is glorified in a world full of evil i don't want to put too much on your plate (laughs) <laughs> Will there be a third? What about? <laughs> well, if my publisher has their way, yeah, there'll be a perpetual, uh, you know, perpetual books from here on out. But yeah, we'll we'll see about that. But no, I I am contracted to write a a condensed, more reader friendly version of as you point you showed that book in the beginning. It's it's five hundred plus pages. And it's some pretty dense at points, you know, uh, as you guys know. Uh, so I'm I'm going to write a a probably a, a 150 to 170 page 
book that's going to be basically the same argument, a little bit more practical, uh, definitely more reader friendly, more palatable for for the average person who may be intimidated uh, by reading the big thick book. Um, it won't replace the big book by any means, definitely. but it will introduce the argument to a, a, in a more reader friendly. Uh, condensed fashion. So that's, that's what's next on my plate. Beyond that, I have a few ideas, but I uh, don't want to commit myself. <laughs> that's, 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 yeah. Your publisher might hear you and hold you to it. Huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. My publisher hears that, they'll, yeah, they'll be on my tail. <laughs> and, and considering we've, we've been talking about uh, the, the, the uh, compatibilism, we, we don't want to, uh, you know, uh, go towards tomorrow. We want to be focused on today. So <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, as Kai Christensen, we greatly appreciate you coming on our show being the first person to come back on our show. So that uh, we thank you for writing this book. Uh, you know, like I said, it was, it was applicable. Uh, um, you, you talk about it uh, uh, being long. Uh, I, I, I would have liked it to be longer because I've, I've got so much uh, joy of reading it. And so um, they, they can, they can uh, pick up your uh, uh, condensed uh, version in the future. They can come watch our show as they then pick up the, the, the new book and, and sure. we can help walk them through and, and they can just keep putting on repeat. So it helps us with the uh, viewership. <laughs> there <laughs> so uh th again th thanks for coming on thanks for uh um carving uh some time out to, to talk to us and uh, uh allowing us to thank you for for your work yes thanks for having me on it's been it's been my pleasure all right all right folks um uh next week we'll probably do a just a uh, uh intro to our next uh book that we're going to be doing and uh, uh give you a, a week or two to um to, to pick that up uh so Join us next time, and always uh, we'll cut this uh, episode up into short parts. So if you're wanting to find out exactly what to say to Christians when something bad happens, uh, then uh, th that, uh, that clip I'm sure will, will be uh, in this coming week. So uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.